Every single year, as we're stretching our cotton spiderwebs across our stoops and hanging our cheaply made ghouls, propping up our styrofoam graves, we are told by the media, by police, and by politicians that an unspeakable evil lurks in the little house at the end of each suburban street. An insidious character sitting in a dark living room under a single dying light bulb, tampering with the very Halloween candy the nation's naive children will soon delight in. But as we'll see in today's re-release of our second episode ever, Poison Halloween Candy is an urban or rather suburban legend that no matter how many times we try to poison to death, just will not die. Right on schedule, this traditional outcry is yet again burning across social media. Local news stations everywhere, as well as Good Morning America, Newsweek, and most vocally, Fox News have been raking in the clicks and the views with that same sensational combination of stranger danger panics, drug panics, and immigration panics. By now, you've probably heard some talk of rainbow fentanyl, an addictive and dangerous drug disguised as colorful little candies by drug dealers who have, of course, recently crossed the southern border. And now here they are, planting the seeds for a future generation of suburban opioid addicts, you know, really playing the long game. But never fear, a group of Republican senators, including Kansas's Roger Marshall, Florida's Rick Scott, Tennessee's Marsha Blackburn, and Texas's John Cornyn, have vowed to take on this apparently widespread emergency. And wouldn't you know it, this Halloween nightmare just so happens to be occurring eight days before the midterm elections. And this story works really well with their staunch anti-immigration narrative and rhetoric, as well as their tough-on-drugs and tough-on-crime posturing. Just a few days ago, they released a super-serious video that summed up their concerns. Let's listen. Rainbow fentanyl comes in a variety of bright colors, shapes, and sizes, including pills, powders, and blocks that resemble sidewalk chalk. These pills are a deliberate effort by drug traffickers to drive addiction amongst kids and young adults. Even just handling these pills or powders masquerading as candy can kill a person. All it takes is one pill or enough powder to fit on the tip of a pencil to poison and kill someone. Over the past two years, 10 tons of fentanyl has been seized at our southern border. Of course, we know much more made it across the border and into communities like yours undetected. This epidemic is exploding, which is why this Halloween, 
Let's join forces and look out for one another. Only let kids get candy from trusted neighbors, family, and friends. Set a curfew. Always double and triple check their candy for drugs or suspiciously packaged or unpackaged items. Because by working together and being on high alert this Halloween, we can help put an end to the drug traffickers that are driving addiction and poisoning our neighbors and children. It is now commonly believed by a faction of the country that drug dealers are yet again giving out free drugs. Last year, dealers were allegedly planning to give away a ton of free weed disguised as candy. And I say, just give that candy to me. But Mariah Francis, a resource associate with the National Harm Reduction Coalition, disagrees wholeheartedly. Quote, Drug markets are based off profit gain and profit margins, and they are not making money giving free fentanyl tablets to small children, going on to call this Republican-led campaign markedly ridiculous. Sure, colorful pills are sold on the market, most often a kind of branding technique to separate their products from others. But despite the complete lack of evidence that candy-loving kids are being explicitly targeted by drug dealers, the always trustworthy Drug Enforcement Administration sent out a press release on August 30th that warned parents of small children about rainbow fentanyl. But one must stop to consider that if these soulless drug dealers are indeed handing out candy to neighborhood kids on Halloween, doesn't that mean they have to live in a house in the neighborhood? Which means that if kids suddenly started overdosing on fentanyl, it would be extremely easy to zero in on the culprit's residence. Which means that it is a super bad plan all around. But myths around this drug, just like every drug, are plenty. For example, police have claimed that just touching fentanyl can lead to fainting and even death, which is scientifically impossible. But it is a great way to gain sympathy for authorities and justify harsher and more punitive treatment of drug users. When it comes to opioids, there is indeed a serious epidemic. Overdose deaths skyrocketed 41% in 2020, with significant increases for 25 to 34-year-olds, as well as 55 and above. But the age group that's luckily not experiencing this heartbreaking bump? Kids under 15. Now listen, I don't have kids, but it feels like I'm constantly certain that everyone I love will die. So I really can't imagine the kind of anxiety that comes from looking out for young children. It's fun to laugh at urban legends and moral panics, but at the same time, it's gross as hell to exploit the love and fear that animate parenthood. And that's exactly what this bunk story does with the end game of engendering fear of immigrants while making these Republicans seem tough on crime and tough on drugs right before the midterm elections.
Last week, I had a parent actually write to me, trying to figure out if this was just another version of the same old urban legend. She was truly and rightly concerned, even considered buying Narcan, a medicine used to stop an opioid overdose. And to that, I say, everyone gets some Narcan. It's available over the counter in most pharmacies and can often be billed to insurance. In addition, for those with more immediate needs, it can also be accessed for free through state programs and community-based organizations. You can find a link to more information in our show notes. It's extremely unlikely that a child will need to be saved from a drug cartel long game Halloween dosing. But with so many preventable opioid deaths in America today, I would never dissuade anyone from carrying a life-saving medicine. You can use naloxone, commonly known by its brand name Narcan, without any training or authorization in both nasal spray and injectable forms. It's small enough to carry in a purse or even a pocket, and it's not harmful to the person it's being used on, regardless of whether or not they're actually having an overdose. It works to reverse symptoms within three minutes, restoring the ability to breathe. In 40% of overdose deaths, another person was present, someone who could have potentially provided life-saving care. Since there have never been any deaths associated with a stranger tampering with kids' Halloween candy, as we'll hear about in our re-release today, perhaps we can reframe this conversation. Strangers can be killers once in a while, but at the same time, strangers can save each other's lives if we're willing to look past myths and urban legends and into common sense practices for addressing opioid use disorder and overdose. So yes, check your kids' Halloween candy. Of course, why not? Safety first. And at the same time, parents everywhere deserve to use this urban legend to their advantage by combing through the spoils of the youth and picking out all the good candy for themselves. Hide it on the top shelf of the cupboard. So again, check our show notes for a link to harm reduction resources. And for further listening on this topic, may I recommend checking out our episode called Drugs and the follow-up conversation called The Calm Down, The Morality of Drugs in the Opioid Crisis. Now, here it is, our episode from 2018, when I was just a little baby, called poisoned Halloween candy. Right after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. 
Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On this season, we'll be exploring the moral panics, urban legends, and conspiracy theories that shape our psychology and culture, and why we end up believing them. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Halloween is supposed to be fun, but trick or treat turned into a real-life nightmare. They claim a nail was stuffed inside one of their child's suites, and they believe someone put it there intentionally. When I saw it, I just was ready to throw all her candy away and never take her trick-or-treating again. You never want to think that it's going to happen in your neighborhood or anywhere, but I guess that's why you should always, always check. Every Halloween is a window of time where kids get to do the opposite of what they're told day after day. They get to walk around in the growing dark, literally taking candy from strangers. And the stories play on the local news each year without fail. There may be a sadistic, anonymous neighbor trying to hurt or kill trick-or-treaters through tampering with the candy they're passing out. Razor blades and candy apples, needles and chocolate bars, harmful drugs injected into homemade sweets. These stories of death and serious harm by strangers are all unconfirmed or have been debunked entirely, identified as hoaxes in urban legends. But nonetheless, the fear persists year after year, and so do the news stories, police warnings, and super-safe alternatives to neighborhood trick-or-treating. The legends of the Halloween poisoner may be almost entirely false, but the idea that something evil lurks at the center of the sweet things we love to eat dates back to the 1800s, when industrialization took the creation of food out of our homes and close communities and into faraway factories. Like the candy-tampering stranger, we were suspicious of megacorporations that pumped out processed sweets, foods that didn't quite resemble anything we'd eaten before, with their bright colors, strange textures, and intense flavors. Foods that were specifically designed to fill us with want. 
On this episode, I'll explore our bizarre history with sweets, both the desire and the panic. The story starts with the influential beliefs of one John Harvey Kellogg, who believed the path to God could be found in what we ate, and that what we ate could also lead us to unforgivable sin. We'll explore how our fanatical, guilt-ridden, and suspicious relationship to junk food has led to some wild urban legends beyond just the Halloween poisoner, like spider eggs and bubble yum and death by Pop Rocks. We'll also see how those same anxieties eventually exploded into some full-blown countrywide hysterias, with people seeing glass shards and Girl Scout cookies and syringes in Pepsi cans. We'll see how candy came to mean more than just a small moment of simple pleasure, and instead became a symbol of sin, rebellion, and death. Rich. Rich. Dark. Dark. Sinfully delicious. Embrace your naughty side and indulge in the rich decadence and endless pleasure of melted dark chocolate. Chocolate vegans. By sex chocolate. Your secret's safe with us. I know you've heard commercials like that one. Commercials that explicitly use forbidden sex to sell chocolate. But there was a time when this feeling, that sweets led to this and other forms of unacceptable rebellions, dominated the conversation around candy. By the 1850s, industrialized food production had hit much of the nation, and life for families began to change drastically. Americans had every reason to fear this extreme change of lifestyle, a change that meant that food that was once prepared at their homes with their own hands, grown from friends in the community, had been outsourced to giant looming factories, haunted houses of complete unknowns. Around this time, and probably because of these changes, the U.S. also entered their first clean living movement, a period of time in which a culture becomes obsessed with what they eat and how they live, and whether or not a lifestyle can truly be healthy if it isn't totally natural. This movement was popularized by the Reverend Sylvester Graham, the inventor of graham crackers. But graham crackers weren't always the sweet, delicious cookie cracker they are today. In fact, they were created to be as bland as possible. See, Graham believed that people should follow a diet similar to that of Adam and Eve, eating mainly fruits and vegetables. One must avoid meat and processed foods, which he believed to be unnatural for human consumption, especially because it allowed women the freedom to do more than just cook, which he, of course, did not approve of. Not only that, Graham also believed that too much flavor could stimulate the sexual organs and lead to rampant sexual deviancy. Fifty years later, a man named Dr. John Harvey Kellogg carried on this tradition as the celebrities of the nation led yet another clean living movement. Kellogg was a medical doctor and Seventh-day Adventist who shared most of Graham's beliefs. He was a mega-celebrity to the rich and powerful, to those who had the leisure time and money to consider carefully what they ate and how they lived. I like to think of it as the original goop. He ran a health spa for politicians and famous people where casual enemas were extremely popular for health, as were sun baths, which are exactly what they sound like, just rich people basking in the sun to become even more super healthy. His strangest and most serious crusade, though, was against masturbation. Like Graham, Kellogg believed that certain flavors, especially those found in candy, sexually aroused those who ate them and promoted masturbation, which he thought was a plague of the time and the very worst sin one could commit. 
In fact, Kellogg was so against sex in general, it's believed that he never even consummated his marriage to his wife of over 40 years. Let's hear a little excerpt from one of the doctor's books. The use of sweetmeats, and in fact, all kinds of stimulating foods, has an undoubted influence upon the sexual nature of boys, stimulating those organs into too early activity and occasioning temptations to sin, which otherwise would not occur. They are not wholesome for either old or young, but for the young, they are absolutely dangerous. So, along with his brother Will, the Kelloggs invented cornflakes, a cereal so bland that it couldn't possibly arouse anyone. Kellogg thought he could help save young people from going down the wrong path, hysterical with flavor, unable to control their sinful urges. Because if kids and teenagers could not control those urges, Kellogg wrote about the importance of using mutilation without anesthetic to medically prevent erections for boys and the use of carbolic acid on the genitals of girls. He also advocated bandaging and tying their hands, putting cages around their genitals, and using electric shock, which to folks at the time was apparently less bad than masturbation itself. When his brother betrayed him brutally by adding sugar to the terrible-tasting cornflakes, Kellogg quit the business, and to their credit, Kellogg's cereal went on later to condemn the doctor's more controversial opinions. Some of Kellogg's views about flavor did have at least a little bit of merit. With the boom of mass-produced candy in the early 1900s came the new experience of hyper-palatability, basically maximum deliciousness, created through the balancing of sugar, salt, and fat. Our cravings for these tastes are natural. During our eons as hunter-gatherers, these were rare resources, and our survival depended on finding a small amount of each. But new science allowed these ingredients to be combined and maxed out, and when they strike the right balance, they can actually stimulate the same parts of our brains as heroin, flooding us with endorphins, as well as a nagging feeling for more. Endorphins, like those released during sexual experiences, just like drugs and sex, you can be addicted to hyperpalatability. Likely because of this effect, candy has always been a source of fear for parents. It was one of the first mass-produced products, and certainly the first marketed specifically to kids, and working and middle-class children alike were spending their holy Sundays with their balmy hands on the windows of penny candy shops instead of sitting in church. Rumors were common that store clerks were filling the sweets with brandy to get them hooked. Parents believed that sweets led to smoking cigars and getting drunk, to drugs and crime. And so Graham and Kellogg's beliefs about candy also leading to sexual deviancy were easily accepted all over the growing country and added to candy an unshakable association with dangerous rebellion. Every child was a potential Hansel or Gretel, getting lost in the woods of sin, wandering hungrily toward the shimmering candy house that would be their demise. Candy was the gateway drug. Despite parents' fears, the industry boomed forward, and candy companies looked for flashy new ways to attract kid customers, and sweets began to look nothing like anyone had ever seen. With the use of new dyes, candy's colors got brighter, and with new recipes, it got even more hyper-palatable. Candy got more dramatic, and according to this neat little theory in biology, our attraction to the dramatic in general might be instinctual. The theory is about something called supernormal stimuli, and it was first discovered in an experiment with birds. 
In this experiment, a fake nest was placed near the nest of a bird that had laid small, light blue speckled eggs. The fake nest contained fake eggs, but they were larger, of a brighter blue color, and with black polka dots, basically an exaggerated version of the bird's own eggs. The scientist was shocked as he watched the birds easily abandon their own living eggs for the more exaggerated fake ones. They sat on top of them, but because the eggs were so large, they just slowly slid off, only to climb right back on. It seems to some social scientists that this bias toward exaggerated things may affect humans as well. They say we feel it in the large eyes of infants, of kittens and puppies, and we want to hold them. They say it's why we love Disneyland, Las Vegas, Hollywood movies, and even pornography. Candy made to be brighter than what our brains can instinctually identify as food with tastes so dramatic as to act like opiates in our brains. It's pretty easy to see why candy was met with a mixture of desire and fear, which would also be the case in the 1970s when some revolutionary new candies hit the shelves and along with them, some widespread urban legends. The 1970s brought us a third clean living movement, on the heels of the late 1960s, when the hippie counterculture began to popularize things like vegetarianism, food co-ops, and organic produce, hearkening back, though unknowingly, to the philosophies of Dr. Kellogg. At first, these new foods grossed out the post-war generation, and the hippies' propensity toward free love, drugs, meditation, and rock music didn't really help their clean food cause. But by the 1970s, these ideas had hit the mainstream, and with them came a flood of urban legends that folklorists believe represent a collective unease about junk food similar to that of the Industrial Revolution. Hey, what's happening? The cracklings, what's happening? Pop rocks. There's bags of the bike. Pop rocks. The sizzle makes you giggle. Pop rocks. The cracklins, what's happening? America first saw ads for the bright colors and magical fizz of Pop Rocks in 1975. It was an overnight sensation of supernormal stimuli and hyperpalatability, with kids all over the country begging for the new candy experience. Pouches were shared on playgrounds, and kids held their mouths open to the sky, like we did, to hear them crackle. And then they told each other what they had heard from a friend of a friend about Little Mikey's untimely death. For those of you too young to remember Little Mikey, which includes me, he was a commercial sensation, a picky little boy who frowned over life cereal only to enjoy it after all. Let's get Mikey! Yeah! He won't need it. He hates everything. But, according to the legend, that little boy died a violent, frothing-at-the-mouth kind of death, all because he dared combine Pop Rocks and Coke, and the carbonation just overcame him. More after this. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. And now, back to the show. It was the parents that set the teenage tale alight, 
bringing the rumors from the lockered halls of the junior high school to the headquarters of General Mills. Parents were somehow still primed and ready to believe that Candy might be dangerous, even though the days of Dr. Kellogg were long past. But this wasn't a danger of its bad influence, but of its potential harm. They made call after frantic call to the helplines, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They were also making these frantic calls to John Gilchrist's mother, informing her again and again that her son was in fact dead. Actor John Gilchrist was not, of course, killed by Pop Rocks and Coke, and to this day he has no idea how the legend got started. But can you guess what his favorite candy was? It was like John was the only one truly enjoying Pop Rocks, knowing that he wasn't dead. The story became such a problem that the company spent $500,000 to try to debunk the rumors with full-page ads in 45 major newspapers, but still sales did not recover. Ad execs begged John's parents to let him appear in Pop Rocks commercials to prove to families once and for all that he had not been killed by their product, but he was still under contract with Life Serial. The rumors were so damning that General Mills had to discontinue Pop Rocks completely in 1982. That year, they used a steamroller to crush a remaining surplus of 300 million pouches worth of the candy, and then they buried the Technicolor dust in underground landfills. Pop Rocks did eventually come back, but they'd never be as popular as they once were. And to this day, they're whispered about with a smiling suspicion, and they're still brought up when people post YouTube videos of Mentos being dropped into Coke bottles, the soda shooting in a fountain up into the air. And no, Mentos and Coke are not a lethal combination either, just a new take on an old urban legend. In fact, Coca-Cola has struggled with so many of these myths, ones about mice found in their bottles or about teeth dissolving in a glass of the liquid overnight, that there is a whole subgenre of urban legends known as Coke lore. But they've always seemed to be able to rise above the legends, and the companies never had to shell out the kind of money other companies have to protect their rep. Is that bubble young bubble gum? Yep. Is it soft as you? Really soft and juicy too. And the flavor lasts a long time? Sure does. Does it last this long? Longer. This long? Longer. How long does bubble young flavor last? It lasts this long. So long. I know it seems pretty mundane now, but when Bubble Yum was first introduced to the American market in 1976, it was a really big deal. People were used to hard gum that you had to chew and chew to get it to soften, but bubble yum, it came soft, and it was a pretty exciting new invention. But because it was unfamiliar, it didn't take long for the imaginations of teenagers to come up with the secret ingredient that gave it that springy texture, spider eggs. Suddenly, friends of friends everywhere were waking up with their faces covered in webs or dropping dead suddenly in the halls of the school two towns over, their bellies filled with hatched spiders, biting them from inside. Just like with Pop Rocks, Bubble Yum sales began to dip in a serious way. It became so dire a PR problem that the company spent a hundred grand to combat the spreading rumors. They too ran full-page ads in newspapers all over the country with the headline, Somebody is telling very bad lies about a very good product. Bubble Yum was luckier than Pop Rocks. Within a year, the scare died down and sales returned to normal. This image of spider eggs and bubblegum seems like a metaphor to me. 
a way to express a feeling, in this case, maybe an anxiety about a new food, with a direct comparison, in this case, spider eggs, an image we are certainly made to fear by society, but also possibly by our instincts themselves, in which we inherit important information about potential threats to our safety, like spiders. In the next decade, our fear of junk food manifested even more dramatically, with more bad metaphors, even more direct and bold, in the form of broken glass, used syringes, razors, and pins. But this time it was more extreme. Not only were people guessing at the dangers that might lie in their food, they were actually full-on hallucinating some pretty scary things. Samoas, Thin Mints, Tagalongs, Peanut Butter Patties. Everyone seems to have a favorite, and few treats inspire the happy mania that Girl Scout cookies do each year. But this beloved American tradition took a dark turn in 1984, and a new panic switched up the common myth of the Halloween poisoner. Instead of a shadowy psychopath handing out poison candy to the kids that came knocking on his door, the danger was now being hand-delivered to adults by uniformed little girls with auburn braids standing on their doormats. After an initial news report about potential tampering, 850 people reported finding glass, needles, and pins in their cookies, with thousands more demanding refunds, costing the Girl Scouts tens of thousands of dollars. When the FBI investigated the claims, however, they were able to determine that no tampering occurred at the manufacturing or distribution levels. No evil person was found with a tub full of broken glass, sprinkling it into the dough. In fact, they couldn't find a pattern between the different claims. They were all coming from different factories. After examining all the evidence, it was discovered that almost all the claims were people mistaking things like crystallized sugar for glass and wheat stems for wood splinters. Maybe you can relate to this feeling. It's like when you see a spider across the room, and then the spider feels like it's on your skin, even though it's nowhere near you. Once you become aware of a threat, it can be easy to imagine it into existence. People were hearing about glass in their cookies, and their minds were playing tricks. 24 states now claim to have discovered foreign objects in Pepsi cans. Everything from needles to bullets have shown up. Ken, what can you tell us about that? In 1993, a couple in Tacoma, Washington, claimed to have found a syringe in a can of Diet Pepsi. As the local news began covering the story, a second syringe was found by a customer 10 miles away. Soon, dozens more people from 20 different states reported finding all kinds of sinister items, among them needles, pins, screws, a crack cocaine vial, and a bullet, all in Pepsi or Diet Pepsi cans. An investigation was launched immediately, and each claim was investigated by the FDA, with PepsiCo working in cooperation. Executives and factory workers alike all knew that it was virtually impossible that the tamperings were happening at their factories, but they needed to prove it to the public. Over the next week, factory workers and CEOs went on news shows to explain how their canning process worked, and how there was simply no way for a worker to slip a syringe into the can. Pepsi caught a break when surveillance footage showed a particularly cunning woman slipping a syringe into her own can in a store in Aurora, Colorado. 
In the silent black and white video, the woman is seen asking the cashier at the checkout counter to open her can of Pepsi for her, gesturing that she has recently had her nails done. The checker obliges and opens it for her. The cashier then becomes distracted by something, and the woman turns slightly and slips a syringe into the open can. And then, for some reason, the woman asks the checker to pour the Pepsi into a glass she has brought from home, and both women look on as the syringe slips out. It's a nice touch, making the checker a witness. This video was shown, along with a PSA from the president of Pepsi, calling out the scandal as a full-blown hoax. A bunch of people had put dangerous objects in their own sodas, likely for money, maybe for attention, or maybe for some other reason altogether. I have to wonder if the syringes found in cans of Pepsi are yet another metaphor from our poetic subconscious, representing a growing knowledge of processed sugar and diabetes, but maybe that's a stretch. Once they were cleared, Pepsi took out a series of newspaper ads addressing the hysteria. The headline simply read, Pepsi is pleased to announce nothing. More than 90% of reports of product tampering turn out to be false alarms. The more publicity a tampering scare gets, the more people report similar incidents. In 1984, right after the Girl Scout cookie panic, the FDA went from receiving 20 complaints a month to more than 200. It's difficult to know how many of these incidents are hallucinations of sinister objects and how many are sly opportunists looking to jump on a lawsuit. But there's another option, too, and it harkens back to our first episode on Stranger Danger. Instead of a sadistic factory worker, a family member could have been using the tampering panic as an opportunity to harm their own, as was the case when the myth of poison Halloween candy began, with the death of a child by a murderer who had come to be known as the Candyman. But we begin with a Halloween horror that still haunts the Houston area 40 years later. In Gina, it's hard to imagine a more innocent, a more trusting, a more American tradition than trick-or-treating. But on this same street, if you walk just a few steps down, you'll find one of the most horrific, one of the most gruesome Halloween horror stories ever recorded. On Halloween night in 1974, an eight-year-old boy named Timothy O'Brien sat at his dining room table after a successful night of trick-or-treating, surveying all the bright candy he poured out from his bag. His father, Ronald O'Brien, allowed him just one piece of candy that night, a 21-inch pixie stick that he tore at hungrily, his father helping him to get it open, since it appeared to have been stapled shut. When Timothy complained that the powder tasted bitter, his father brought him a glass of sweet Kool-Aid to wash it down. Timothy then climbed into bed and closed his eyes, and an hour later, he was dead. At the hospital, the doctor could smell almonds coming from Timothy's mouth, a sure sign that he had been killed by cyanide. Ronald told police about the pixie stick, and sure enough, the top inch was packed with enough poison to kill two people. A panic broke out among parents as police and the news made announcements to the community about the possibility that their children, too, could have received the tainted candy. But authorities were already suspicious of the situation, suspicious of Ronald, set off first by his odd behavior the day of the funeral, when he raged at family members who refused to stay up late enough to see him perform an original song on TV that night about Jesus taking his son home. That week, police trolled around the neighborhood with Ronald, but he couldn't remember which house the candy came from. After two trips out, police started pressing him, and Ronald pointed to a shadowy porch. His memory finally jogged. He told the story again. 
He had been out trick-or-treating with his two kids, his friend and his friend's son. And when they had knocked on this particular door, no one had answered, so the others continued down the block. Only Ronald noticed when the door creaked open barely, and from inside the pitch-black house, a single hairy arm handed him five pixie sticks. He never saw the man's face. And with that very cinematic story, investigators became even more suspicious. And when 200 people all confirmed that the alleged poisoner had been at work Halloween night, police knew where to look next. They soon uncovered that Ronald had taken out life insurance policies on his children, $10,000 each the previous January, and $20,000 each a month before Halloween. To cover his tracks, Ronald had also given a pixie stick to his friend's son and another to a local boy they ran into that night. But luckily, the parents heard about Timothy's death in time. The morning after Halloween, one of the boys was found fast asleep, clutching the cyanide pixie stick in his little hand. He had been unable to get it open due to the staples. When evidence quickly piled up against the candy man, as the media had dubbed him, he was sentenced to death and 10 years later would be killed by electric chair. But the myth of the random Halloween poisoner would not die with him. A handful of other deaths have been blamed on Halloween candy, but have not been caused by it meaning that something else made the person sick at the same time that they happened to eat Halloween candy. But by the time the truth becomes known, the news has already reported extensively on the scare without following up. Why? Because Halloween's over, and a debunking is always less newsworthy than a scare. And now each year Facebook is flooded by pictures that parents are posting of needles, tacks, razors, weed, ecstasy, and other harmful things found in their kids' loot. Police take these accusations seriously every time, but always find that the kids themselves were pranking their parents, or that their parents were just trying to get attention on social media, knowing that a post like that will be shared thousands of times. In fact, there's just one single example of a stranger being charged with adulterating candy at Halloween time, a 49-year-old man named Joseph Smith, who added needles to chocolate as a dark prank in a Minneapolis neighborhood, trying to bring life to the urban legend in the year 2000. One teenager was pricked in the lip by a needle, but there were no other injuries. Smith was charged with adulterating a substance with intent to cause death, harm, or illness. One teenager's lip pricked by a needle is the only proven harm caused by Halloween candy tampering by a stranger. Nonetheless, year after year, many local hospitals offer free x-rays of Halloween candy, with lines reaching out into the street. It's very, very rare that a stranger would tamper with our food to hurt us on purpose, or that companies would knowingly infect their products with spider eggs or anything else that could hurt customers. As we've seen, it's a nightmare for companies when people even think their products might be tampered with or contain something unsafe, and so they do everything to keep that from happening. But of course, there are dangerous elements to the artificial things we love to eat. It just takes time and quantity for their dangers to be experienced, and it's very true that companies are responsible for that. It's a really great example of the banality of evil and of our habit of believing in the sensational over the mundane. The evil poisoner is exceedingly rare, but there is real risk in overconsumption of processed sugar, a risk that's well documented by science. It's true that sweets can cause serious harm to our bodies, but it's not happening in one night from a swallowed razor blade. It's happening over a long stretch of time, almost imperceptibly. But man, do I love Coca-Cola, though. Like, really, really a lot. It's because the ways in which corporations attract us, using things like supernormal stimuli and hyperpalatability, 
do make junk food feel a little like drugs and sex. So maybe sweets will always represent a bit of the rebellion they once did, but maybe they shouldn't just represent the alleged sins of kids and mischievous teenagers. Maybe even more so, they should represent the sins of adults, like Dr. Kellogg. Sins like promoting physical harm to the young in deeply distressing ways. Sins like faking a threat to kids' safety for shares on social media. Sins like looking for an illegal payout by slipping a syringe into a Pepsi can. Sins like trading the pastel-powdered sugar of a pixie stick for Snow White cyanide and stapling it shut. Next time on the show, the world domination plan by the Illuminati, a mega-powerful secret organization with members from Beyonce to George Soros, who manipulate and orchestrate every world event to further their evil reign. I'll explain how this conspiracy theory has been used to justify horrific crimes, both past and present, and why some people, including me, are more prone to believing than others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Please rate and review and tell all your friends. It really helps us out. American Hysteria is written and produced by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith, assistant produced by Derek Smith, and produced and edited by Rod Rodriguez. And thank you to voice actors Lily Ori and Will Rogers. Join me in two weeks for the next episode on the Illuminati. And in the meantime, take care of yourselves. Thanks for listening.